Well, we are still looking at this prayer that Paul offered on behalf of the Ephesian Christians. I said last week that we can learn a lot from looking at and studying the prayers of the Apostle Paul. The attitude with which he prayed, the pattern that he set as he prayed, the content of the things for which he prayed... They're all very instructive for us, almost without fail. In every letter that Paul wrote, either to a church or to an individual, he would tell them that he was praying for them, and he would tell them what he was praying for. And that's what Paul is doing here at the close of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. If you look back in verse 16... He said, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. There he told them that he was praying for them. Then if you look at verse 18, he goes on to tell them what he was praying for. I pray, he said, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? So the sum of this prayer, Paul is praying for these Ephesians that they would have enlightened eyes or an enlightened heart, that they would be able to see some rich spiritual truths in particular, that they would know the hope, the great hope that is theirs because of the effectual call of God to salvation. That they would know the rich inheritance they have with the saints in Christ. And they would know also the power of Christ that lives in them. And it's that power, praying for the power of Christ in their lives that existential reality of the power of Christ that Paul continues to pray for in our passage this morning. I mentioned last week that we Presbyterians, I'm afraid, are sometimes skittish, skittish of talking about spiritual power. I'm afraid sometimes we're, we're, we're afraid we're going to be lumped in with those who put emotion over truth or those who might engaged in some rather bizarre demonstrations of that power. But we do ourselves a disservice when we deny ourselves the reality of the the true spiritual power that is ours in Christ. The Bible's not afraid to talk about power. The power of Christ in us. The power that comes from the Holy Spirit who lives in us within us. We stress in our church biblical knowledge and theological accuracy, but folks, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that our knowledge of God's Word and our theological perspective would would give us spiritual strength to be able to live for Christ every day, to be able to resist the temptations that assail our souls, and to live with some sense of victory as we walk with Christ. You see, without God's power, no one comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And without God's power, no one can live the Christian life successfully. We simply cannot do it on our own and by our own strength. 
And praise God, He has given to us a power beyond ourselves, even the power of Christ that enables us to live in a way that pleases Him. And that's the substance, really, of this prayer that Paul is offering for these Ephesian Christians. You see, we can only experience these spiritual realities of, that, that Paul has mentioned here, the great hope, the great inheritance, the great power, as we realize the reality of the power of Christ in us. Well, what does that look like? Where do we see the power of Christ? How can we know that it's real? From where do we appropriate this power that is ours? Paul gives us three ways. First, he says the power of Christ is shown in his resurrection, in his resurrection from the grave. So often, I'm afraid, we connect the benefits of the resurrection to a future time, to the resurrection, when Christ will come again and our bodies will be raised in glory. I'm afraid too often we make a connection just between His resurrection and ours someday. Many of our Easter hymns reflect that. One of my favorite hymns is, Jesus lives and so shall I. But notice what that hymn says. It doesn't say, Jesus lives and so do I. But that's the very point that Paul is making here in our text. Because Jesus lives. Because He was raised by the power of God. You and I live. And we can live in victory because of the power of God in Christ that resides in us. It is the power, the power of the resurrection of Christ that lives in us, that we appropriate, gives us the ability to live our lives for Christ as we should. You know, the Bible says there are three main enemies that assail our souls. The world, flesh, and the devil. If you're a believer this morning, you're in a daily struggle against each one of those. The world assails us from out there. The world comes at us from the outside, giving for us all kinds of temptations to disbelieve, to distrust, to disobey. It comes at us through a number of different means, doesn't it? Just by billboards that we see along the highway sometimes. By what we see on the television. Or we watch on a movie. Or even we read in the newspaper or in a magazine. Today what we see on the internet. What comes at us from the various means of social media. The world assails our souls. Well, how do we fight against that? How do we find victory in our struggle with it? It is only by the power of God, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The flesh is an internal enemy. The world assails us from out there. The flesh tempts us from in here. Even though we're new creatures in Christ, there's still within us remnants of what the Bible calls the old man, the old sinful nature. We fight against that every day, don't we? 
Different temptations come to different ones of us as a manifestation of the temptations of the flesh. It's an intense battle sometimes. Paul experienced it. Keep your finger in Ephesians 1 and flip back to Romans chapter 7. Where he describes that intense battle he had against the flesh. Look at verse 15, Romans 7, 15. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. And then verse 17 and 18. So no longer, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. How do we, how do we resist that? How do we fight against the temptations and the lust of the flesh? It is only by the power of God. The very power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And then the devil uses the world and the flesh, doesn't he? The devil's a real enemy. Never doubt the reality. The temptations. The luring of the devil. You know, Peter says that the devil's like a roaring lion seeking someone that he may devour. That's why Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the, the schemes of the devil. The devil's a real enemy of our souls. Well, how do we resist the devil the same way we resist the temptations of the world and the flesh? That's by the power of God. In Christ, the very power that raised from the dead. Look at the text again. Verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of whose might? His might. When he raised him from the dead. The very power of God that raised Christ from the dead. His strength is given to us to fight those spiritual battles. But there's a second place we see the power of Christ. That we see in the text, and that is shown in both Jesus' ascension into heaven and His being seated at the right hand of God. You know, we talk a lot more about the incarnation of Christ, that is, His taking on human flesh, and the crucifixion of Christ, that is, His dying on the cross, and the resurrection of Christ, His being raised from the dead. Then we do... His ascension back into heaven, and we, what we know is His session, or being seated at the right hand of God the Father. But you know, that was always Jesus' desire while He was on earth, wasn't it? He had this longing, this craving, this desire to be restored again to the glory that He once shared with His heavenly Father. And now he has experienced that. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back into heaven. And we're told that not only did he ascend into heaven, but once he got there, he was seated at the right hand of his Father. That is what we know 
as his session. You know, Philippians 2 talks about the, the connection between Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard the equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then what do we find next? Therefore, God also highly exalted him. And Jesus is now in his exalted state in heaven. He is there, the text says, at his right hand, Ephesians chapter 1. He raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand is always a place of great significance in the Bible. We, we use it that way today, don't we? We talk about someone being another person's right-hand man. To indicate that person has an important place. Jesus is at the right hand of God. A very, very important place. A place of honor and prestige and power. But notice... He isn't just there, but he is seated there. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And what that indicates is that it symbolizes that Jesus' work as our Savior is done. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, It is finished. He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and what did he do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to look with me at several verses in the book of Hebrews that, that talks about that act of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, reflecting the culmination, the finishing of His work as, as our Savior. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 3, start in the middle of that verse, toward the end of it. It says, When he, he, that is Christ, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then over to chapter 8, Hebrews 8, and verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And over chapter 10 and verse 12. But he, again, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God. And then one more over to chapter 12. And verse 2, where it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and what has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a real sense of finality in that imagery, isn't there? Jesus made purification for sins. He died on the cross. He gave his life. And now he has sat down at the right hand of his Father. 
However, what I want you to know this morning is that Jesus' role as your priest and as your mediator continues. Just because Jesus' work of salvation, of redemption is done, that it is finished, doesn't mean His work in your soul is done. Notice the text says, back to Ephesians chapter 1, that He seated Him at the right, His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is in a position of authority and power over everything else that exists. He is Lord over earth. He is Lord over heaven. Lord of things now and Lord of things to come. Even though Jesus has sat down at his Father's right hand, his intercession continues. Remember the story of Stephen? Being stoned, the first Christian martyr. And as he was breathing breathing his last, God gave him this vision of God on the throne and Jesus was there at his right hand, but he was at that moment not sitting. He was standing, interceding, pleading for Stephen. Welcome him into the heavenly realms. Now he gives us two things. He gives us a wonderful sense of security and a tremendous sense of responsibility. Do you realize how much the Lordship of Christ gives to you a tremendous sense of security? You know, the picture the Bible gives us of salvation again is that God saves us and He holds on to us. He keeps us in His firm grip. Jesus said, My Father has given them to me and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. You realize how the Lordship of Jesus, the fact that He is Lord over all, He has been given all dominion and authority and power gives you a great sense of security for your soul because he holds you firmly in his grip and no one, no one or no thing can ever snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. He gives you a tremendous sense of security. It also gives us a tremendous sense of responsibility. Jesus is not just Lord of the universe. Jesus is... He's Lord of your life. When we come to faith in Jesus, we don't just take Him to rescue us from hell. We take Him to submit our wills to His, to give our lives to Him, to live in a way that would please and honor Him. We don't just accept Jesus as Savior and then, oh, by the way, maybe someday we'll embrace Him also as our Lord. No, we embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, as the one who redeems us and the one who controls us and guides us in life. The fact that Jesus Lord gives us who are His people a tremendous sense of responsibility to submit to His Lordship every day. Then there's a third way we see the power of Christ in our text. And that's shown in his headship over the church. Verses 22 and 23. He put all things in subjection under his feet 
gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Those verses clearly continue the same idea of the previous verse about Jesus having all authority and all power and all dominion. You know, earlier in this service, and in God's providence, Gary picked the one hymn I needed him to continue to sing that was in the bulletin that was there for a purpose. And that's the chorus, He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord, we sang. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. And He is Lord of all. All things are in subjection under His feet, the text says. He has been given as head over all things. And the passage says, especially to the church. Let that sink in for just a moment. There is nothing in this world that is outside the realms of Jesus' power, authority, and dominion. There's nothing in this world that is not subject to Him. Where did He get that power and authority? You know, we're told back in verse 11 that God works all things after the counsel of His will. We've seen in our study of Ephesians 1 how God is sovereign over all of life, even salvation. But what the Bible teaches is that after Jesus' humiliation, His incarnation, then His resurrection, and His ascension, and His being seated at His right hand, God now shares that authority and that power with His Son. And that authority and that power and that dominion is especially given to Jesus over the church. That makes this a lot more personal, doesn't it? You know, it's one thing to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. Another thing to sing, he's got me in his hands. Or he's got us in his hands. Or he's got, he's got our church in his hands. You see, the church is an extension of Jesus. The Bible says that He is the head and we are the body. And the Bible gives other analogies. The bride and the groom. That's one analogy of Christ and the church. But there is not another analogy that shows us the organic union between Christ and the church like this one. That Christ is the head and we are the body. You know, the, the human body's a fascinating thing, isn't it? All these individual parts, and they work in harmony so that we can function. And, you know, it's, it's, when, it's when, when part of the body doesn't function right that, that the whole body suffers, right? All these individual parts, and they function together. And where do they get their direction 
from the head. All that your body does is directed from the head. And, and the Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church. We are his body. We draw our life from our connection with him. And we draw our sense of direction and purpose. Knowing what we should do, how we should live, what we should be. From this organic union that we have with the living Christ. And that puts the church in a very special place, doesn't it? It places the church in a very unique place. You see, being a part of the church, folks, is serious business. Pray too often we take the church in many ways far too casually. But it's a sobering thing to think that as we sit here this morning, we're not just North Point Presbyterian Church, a, a small church and a, a small denomination. But we're a part here this morning of the body of Christ. And Christ is our head. And we look to Him for who we are. From Him we, we derive our identity, our sense of purpose, our sense of place, our understanding of why we're here and what we are to do. Our worship that we're doing now, our fellowship that we're going to experience later, our service to each other, our outreach to the community, are all to be done under the headship of Jesus Christ. And the, and the text says that, that Christ fills the church. The church is His body, it says, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What does that mean? It means one of our greatest desires here as a church should be would be to be full of Christ. To be full of Christ. What do we want here in this church? Oh, we want the building to be full, don't we? I do. More than that, I want, I want us to be full. To be full of Christ. To be the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I told several of you recently that I'm encouraged by what we see here at North In spite of all the transitions we've experienced and some that we still face, oh, I'm, not, I'm not discouraged a bit. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged back up because of what I see Christ doing in your hearts and in your lives. There is here a true spirit of fellowship. There is a real desire to pray for one another. To minister to each other. There's a genuine interest in kind of pitching in and helping and doing what you can to carry on the ministry of our church so that it'll be active and vibrant. And I want you to know this morning, as long as we continue to look to Jesus, as long as we try to be full of Him, realize that He's the one who fills all in all, that we're the fullness of Christ. Folks, this church will be just fine.
You see, we're not left here to fend for ourselves. The text is clear. We have the power of Christ available to us. And it's not just a power out there that we tap into every once in a while when we think we need it. That's a power that resides in you. Paul says in Philippians of Christ, he is the hope of glory. Christ in you, he says, a hope of glory. It is the presence of the risen Christ, the ascended Christ who's seated at his Father's right hand, the Christ who is the head of the church that empowers us, enables us to be all that he's called us to be, to do what he's given us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so rich. We thank you for it. We pray your blessing upon us as we seek now to assimilate the truths we've read this morning, to which we've been exposed by your Holy Spirit. You give us grace to apply it to our hearts. And I pray that each one of us would sense more of the power of Christ, the power of the risen, ascended Christ in our lives. And we would submit ourselves to him as the genuine head of our lives and of the church. We ask it all in his name. Amen.